0: (tose) La pon, yo la pon, yo la pon, yo la pon, yo 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 You are listening to WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3 and get more information about the show, goodmorningcomrade.com. Today on the program, we have a very special guest. We have the author of Ringmaster, Vince McMahon, and the Unmaking of America, Abraham Josephine Reisman. How are you doing today, Uh, Josie?
1: I am very happy to be here, so thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, we were just talking off air about your sort of background with uh, community yeah, radio. Community radio.
1: It's funny. I, I my first. Uh, I mean, I started in journalism at my college newspaper, but mm. then the uh, summer after my freshman year, after I'd started at the paper, mm. I got an internship, somewhat randomly, at a um, at a WBAI, the Pacifica radio station, community supported radio station in New York City. Uh, based, ironically, on Wall Street, which I always thought was very funny.
0: Um, <laughs>
1: but... Uh, but where, where they, the real
0: community's at, Wall Street. <laughs>
1: exactly. That's where they really... I don't know the story behind that. I'm sure some wealthy patron like, got them that space a million years ago and they've mm. just been there. I don't even know if they're still there, but mm. as of 2005, I would go down to Wall Street and be a nightly news reporter for the, the news program on the evenings. And... Um, it was a fascinating experience. It's very funny. I've bounced around from, I no longer bounce around nearly as much, but I used to work for that kind of outlet. And then I would also write, like my first gig out of college was at the New York Sun, which okay. is a virul- virulently right-wing editorial page that had like a relatively neutral news operation around it. Now, of course, it's been reborn as this unholy behemoth, um, you know, uh, <laughs> that that says all kinds of horrible MAGA stuff. Mm-hmm. but. I I used to, back in the day when there were more media jobs, but still not as many um, as you'd like, I would sort of take what I could get, and that said, I was much more politically happy when I was working at BAI than I was at uh, uh, a <laughs> few moments at the New York Sun, and I, I certainly I certainly... Uh, lean more towards the community supported radio station end of things these days.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it it really is great to be able to like honestly, like we have I've done this show for what since 2019. Nobody's ever told yeah. me like what I need to say other than like regular copy, you know, regular like yeah. community announcements or whatever and like underwriting and then it's just like okay, just don't curse or do any break any of the rules, yeah. you know what I mean?
1: It's, beautiful. it's a beautiful thing. BAI <laughs> was a really proud institution um, it's gone through a lot of hardship but it's amazing that it's still around I am I'm so in awe of its tenacity and same with uh, HIV I'm uh, it, I'm sorry yeah W-H-I-V. yeah it's um it's really great I'm just you know we can we can have the mutual appreciation society all day if you like but <laughs> I I'm I'm a big fan of independent media I think there's it's a vanishingly Small little portion of media right now, but I actually have a lot of hope for independent media because mm-hmm. I don't think for profit media is going to survive. And I think there will still be demand for media. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, you know, nonprofit or community supported media can step into that gap. Mm-hmm. I have no idea if that'll happen, but I do <laughs> think for profit journalism has no future yeah. in this country. And I I'm I'm on the board of Jewish Currents, which is a nonprofit magazine. Mm -hmm. And I just so I I look at the way the industry goes, not just as a bystander or even just as a staffer, but as somebody who sees how the industry really works from behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see how the for profit model is going to survive because every potential backer or owner is going to demand incredible profits, mm-hmm. which a journalism organization just can't generate. Like, it's the most transparently obvious truism. Once you're in journalism, you're like, but there's no way that we can sustain growth like that. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Like, that's not how the news media works, mm-hmm. that you can, like, have some boondoggle of a media organization.
2: Yeah. So...
1: You know, unless you're unless you're virulently right wing, in which case you can unlimited money.
0: Some. You just have unlimited, unlimited
1: money. unlimited money. It's truly insane what I hear about the rates at places that shall remain nameless, mm-hmm. where they've gone full fascist. It's really amazing. You can make true bank either through that or just through the Patreon or you know whatever fundra- crowdfunding mm-hmm. mechanism you try to uh, substack that you throw at. Mm-hmm. Your your followers. It's
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's a very bizarre time. So, but that's even indica- indicative. I I would love for independent media to have more guardrails on it, but it does seem like that's the direction things are going in.
0: That's why it's independent. I mean, they can't be guardrails because it's independent, right? I know,
1: <laughs> and it's like that's what people want is stuff that's unfiltered. I wish I wish for more filters, but yeah, if we're gonna have to go unfiltered, I'd rather have unfiltered. Uh, people who are, you know, not not
0: not complete. Not, <laughs> the fascist. worst people in the I guess
1: world. Yes, a better word for it. but <laughs> yeah, the worst
0: people on earth. <laughs> right, right. But um, yeah, well, and yeah, like you, like you mentioned, you could find some of you writing in Jewish Currents as well. Um, yeah, I, I
1: don't write for them as often as I would like because they're so picky. If oh. Anybody worries that me being on the board and writing for them results in a conflict of interest. Good luck with any of my pitches. I yeah. we are so picky at Jewish Currents. That I like never actually get picked up for anything. Although I do have an interview coming out sometime soon.
0: Oh, that's good. Um,
1: but uh, yeah, no, I I'm 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 a big fan of the nonprofit model for media. I just don't. It just makes more sense, not just on a business spread chart, but also just on a gut check ethical level. Mm-hmm. Like I just I don't know. It just it doesn't make sense <laughs> to me.
0: Yeah, and and honestly, like the, the I think. I agree with you, from the at least from the angle of like traditional media cannot continue in the way that it currently does. Like yeah, the idea I don't know of what like the next
1: model is, but the current yeah. model is not. I mean, the what, what I keep saying is like Buzzfeed News is dead and Jewish yeah. Current is alive. Like. <laughs> This is, I I don't, and I grieve for BuzzFeed News because there were a lot of great reporters there and they published a lot of great stories. Mm -hmm. But the fact is BuzzFeed News was backed by a horrendous for-profit model that just didn't work. Mm -hmm. And now everybody can admit that, you know, Mm -hmm. that wasn't the fault of the journalists or the editors. That was the fault of Jonah Peretti, Ben Smith, and any number of other people at the top, Mm -hmm. you know, and that place got myrtilated Mm -hmm. in the end.
2: And a bunch of people lost their jobs,
0: unfortunately.
1: Right, and Jewish Currents is still around. I'm not saying that to boast. I'm saying to say that the nonprofit model, I think, ultimately, is going to be more sustainable. Mm -hmm. We can't put out the volume of content that BuzzFeed put out, but who cares? Like, I I don't understand why that became the most important value, is, like, just generating more content so that, on the law of averages you'll dominate more of the court, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to mix my metaphors. yeah yeah but um, it just it just doesn't add up. And I do think that alternative models, whatever they end up being, are going to dominate the scene in like a year in like now. like mm-hmm. this is not a prediction about the far future. Yeah. this is just the state of things as they are right now. Legacy media is crumbling. And even new, and new media, God forbid. I mean, what new media thing is still really left in journalism? You
2: know, I, I guess that the was a, Post whole, is still the whole something.
1: <laughs> yeah, like the Gawker decade. Yeah, Gawker. Yeah. All of the stuff that was created between like 05 and 2015, all of those sites are just gone. Yeah, you know, like well, and their archives. A lot of them are deleted. It's it's really scary. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and, and it's almost like an erasure of history, as. Uh, oh, it is an erasure of history. As as to so of one of my favorite history erasers that we can talk about yeah, Vincent Vince Kennedy. Man. <laughs> but, there you um, go. It's a perfect example. <laughs> Um, and I guess we should get uh, talking about the book. So you wrote this book, and I've, I'm, I'm um, coupled about five chapters in, uh, to Ringmaster. Great, great. And uh, this is a book about Vince McMahon, who is the uh, CEO of the uh, – well, he you know, was the CEO. He's
1: the executive chairman now. Yeah, he's executive
0: got some kind chairman. of position because they purchased yeah. – uh, they got purchased by um, – what was the company called?
1: Endeavor, Endeavor. it's Ari Emanuel's company, it's his holding company, so he's getting, WWE is getting merged with UFC, the mixed martial arts um, uh, uh, operation.
0: So I guess to just kind of kick us off, um, so obviously you don't write a book like this without having some kind of history or relationship or um
1: could but, but I did have a I I I did have a history and relationship with wrestling. Yeah,
0: so I guess maybe you could talk a little bit about that. What was your sort of history when like cuz sure, we talked about yeah. wrestling quite a bit on the show.
1: Yeah, I um I watched a little bit of wrestling when I was about 6. I don't recall a ton of it, although I do remember seeing Hulk Hogan who then would have been in the twilight days of his Hulkamania run in the 80s. And he uh, <laughs> he ripped his shirt open. This was his big thing. He would have a T-shirt on, and he would take his big old biceps and rip that shirt in half and the toss 24 it aside. The
2: 24-inch
1: pythons. 24-inch <laughs> pythons, baby. And I said, Mom... I want to get a tearaway t-shirt like Hulk Hogan has. Cause I thought that was just like a kind of t-shirt you could get. Mm-hmm. I didn't imagine that anybody could be that strong.
2: <laughs> just just rip your shirt off. It
1: apart <laughs> like that. that seemed too much to believe. So my mom, God bless her said, there are, aren't shirts like that. I probably cried if we're being honest. And then she, God bless her, um, took a shirt of mine and cut a little slit down the middle and then tied in shoestrings strings on either side, so I could kind of pull it apart and then go zoop, and then it would tighten back up, pull it apart, go back.
0: And, um, that's very economical. That's a good way that you don't have to was, go through it. It was a, bunch a of very shirt.
1: good use of materials. <laughs> I wish I still had that shirt, it's very efficient. Yeah. Um, I could, I couldn't fit in it, but I'm sure I could, uh, find some kind of perpetual motion machine used yeah. for it. It's so efficient, but, um, it, uh, that was not actually a herald of a, of much of the wrestling fandom for the next few years, you know, I, the rest of my childhood, I wasn't watching it and then it got really popular again around 97, 98 oh, yeah. and I hated it because I wasn't watching it, it was just that my, my bullies all loved it,
2: you know <laughs> oh, no. like
1: all of the kids who were, you know out there bullying me I, you know they were all wearing Stone Cold Steve Austin t-shirts and Degeneration X t-shirts, all of these, these characters from Vince McMahon's World Wrestling Federation, as it was known back then. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't stand it. So I was just like, this thing sucks. I don't want to watch it. And then my best friend Brian caught an episode of WWF Raw, Raw is War, mm-hmm. the flagship show on Monday nights. And he called me and was like, you got to watch wrestling. And I said, why? I, I hate wrestling. And he goes, no, 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 it's not what you think. And he made me watch it. And I fell in love. You know, at first it was a little gradual. But this was the uh, spring-ish, would have been early to spring uh, 1999. And by May, I was completely hooked. Mm -hmm. I don't remember vividly much prior to May, but in that May, I remember vividly seeing the Raw the night after the death of Owen Hart, the wrestler who died live during uh, a massive pay-per-view event. After a, a faulty—not um, exactly a zip line, its called a descender—but you know he was up in the rafters and during a faulty stunt he fell seventy feet to his death.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: oh, no. I remember—I don't remember watching the PPV. I don't think I watched that pay-per-view because I wasn't a, as big a fan as I would later be. But I did watch the Raw the next night, mm-hmm. which was free to watch yeah, if you had and- cable, and it was surreal and really this is in many ways the origin of this book, was watching this bizarre episode of television, truly one of the strangest um, two hours of television you can possibly watch, because it's in the context of this show that has been telling you for years, okay, either implicitly or explicitly, this is fake, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we can get into how that all evolved, but as of 1999, the tout was wrestling is fake, but maybe something real might happen. However, they never delineated where the fake and the real began and ended. So you could kind of make it up for yourself as to what was real and what wasn't. Mm -hmm. And when Owen died, you had this sudden shattering of that illusion.
0: It just got Um, real. the
1: The illusion that there was no illusion, but that there was an illusion. like It suddenly became... It was something as as final and real as death had entered the scene.
2: Mm-hmm. And all of a
1: sudden you had all of these weird scenes on that raw, like these grown men who are tough guys who are going out there every night and showing how strong they are. They're out They're crying like babies in these little interviews where they're talking about Owen, their friend who died less than 24 hours prior to them recording. These interviews, and the mm-hmm. show went on. Sorry, I should have they, mentioned they that. They continued the like, show
0: like they had a match when after when Owen that. died,
1: they kept the show going. It didn't stop. And the next, the Raw the next night, they didn't stop. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching it, and they kept saying, you know, Jim Ross, the announcer, the famous announcer from back then, kept saying to the audience, I know this because I rewatched it for the book, mm-hmm. he kept saying, this is not your typical pro wrestling show. This is real. Mm-hmm. What you're about to see is real. And that kind of-
0: Pulled the curtain back. <laughs>
1: well, it did on, it did, it did. And it was terrifying to see. It was very frightening to see all of these strong men reduced to husks. Mm-hmm. And they they seemed so upset. And I couldn't tell, I here's the thing. I don't remember how much I thought wrestling was real versus fake.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I have, no, I wish I'd kept a diary back then, <laughs> but I have no memory of what I thought was real versus what I thought was fake about wrestling. Cause I knew it was fake on some level, but I knew it was real on some level because real things were mentioned. Real things would happen.
0: Somebody gets and, hit on the head with a steel chair and it makes a big popping sound. That's, that, right, that's that not only be even so just
1: fake. that. I'm talking about like, secret information. Like Mm -hmm. the thing that people forget about that period was what kept people coming back was not the violence. Although Mm -hmm. I'm sure there were a lot of people who just watched it for the violence or the sex appeal. Although I'm sure there were people, it was primarily a matter of going, Hey, you're not going to believe the crazy stuff (laughs) we're about to do. And guess what? Some of it might even be real. And you would toss out stuff that wasn't even not about physicality real. But you'd have someone say like you know you'd have a wrestler come out and say oh my opponent tonight his wife has an alcohol problem and like you'd find out that like or you you would have known rumors about that mm-hmm. from the newsletters or from Usenet or, or whatever. Scott Hall. Remember like,
0: Scott Hall? They they really walked the line with him in WCW when he was when he had actual addiction problems and they wrote that into the story. <laughs>
1: Oh, that happened a million times. Uh-huh. I mean, that's that's the origin of Austin 316 was an angle with
0: Jake the Jake Snake. Jake Roberts, yeah. Where
1: Jake Roberts, Jake the Snake Roberts had Aurelian Smith Jr., his real name. He had... Legend. Um, he had sort of gotten his alcohol and addiction problems under control, but not really. Mm-hmm. He was still pretty unstable, and Vince had him do this angle where he was like clean a religious where gotten angle sober and found jesus mm-hmm. and he really had to commit to that and like did appearances where he would talk about how he had gotten sober and found christ mm-hmm. and it was all made up like it, this is the kind of intrusion into the reality of these wrestlers private lives that mm-hmm. wrestling has started to have that that really began in the mid-90s mm-hmm. and never let up i mean that that's also the origin of Uh, you know, this infamous slash famous match that Vince had, a tag team match against Shawn Michaels and God. Uh, Yeah. Where it was Vince and his son Shane fighting against Shawn Michaels, who had gotten who had gotten clean and sober and found Jesus, as far as we know. Mm -hmm. And Vince wrote in a storyline where Vince's character, Mr. McMahon, got really upset that Shawn Michaels was claiming there was a deity higher than Mr. McMahon in the world. like, And so they had a match where it's really one of the funniest things you can imagine on some level is someone saying, oh, God's your friend. God's so great. Well, why don't we have a tag team match with God? See how great God is. And then of course the guy loses. Shawn Michaels loses. Right, where's so, your God?
0: I beat God, I beat God. Mr. McMahon just like beat shouting beat that in the ring.
1: McMahon wrote a storyline in which he beat God. You can't make that up, folks. <laughs>
0: We pause real quick for station id you're listening to WHIV lp new orleans 102.3 uh this is good morning comrade we have uh, uh, abraham josephine reisman on the show she is the author of ringmaster vince mcmahon and the unmaking of america and uh so on that point sort of like one of the things that like there was also there's also a certain level of catharsis that uh, there's tension and catharsis that always goes along with wrestling so like um you know vince mcmahon for example firing stone cold steve austin and and then the response is that stone cold beats up vince mcmahon or makes him pee his pants because he's got a fake gun to his head or something like that all kinds of crazy stuff well Uh, that was
1: the thing was back then the philosophy was what the writer the the writer vince russo was later credited with inventing this idea of crash tv crash tv sorry i stumbled on my words there crash tv being You put something on screen that's so ludicrous that the person will stop flipping channels. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's funny or shocking or sexual, just something that will get someone to stop flipping channels.
0: Outrageous. Just do something outrageous. Something
1: outrageous that's visually outrageous, (laughs) auditorially outrageous. It needs to have... Just a pure punch in the gut quality, mm-hmm. and wrestling doesn't do that as much anymore. But there was this period where wrestling was peerless mm-hmm. at offending, while bringing people in. You mm-hmm. know, it, there was nothing more offensive than it was. It, it outdid Jerry Springer. You know, yeah. Oliver Sholem, RIP. Um, yeah, in uh, it, yeah. it's yeah. it's ridiculousness and it's addiction to spectacle. But that was what worked until it didn't. you know, after a while, you can only play that card so many times before people stop taking you seriously. That's always the danger of this approach to reality where you're being so meta 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 mm-hmm. that you run out of run of, of uh, runway. Mm-hmm. you know, you can't you can't actually sustain a storytelling apparatus. For that long, if you're being that removed from the earnestness that was the original heart of the art form, Mm -hmm. you know, like it used to be you committed to the lie so much that the lie became real. But that was the point. It was dedication to that lie, whether you were a wrestler producing the lie or an audience member consuming the lie you really committed to that lie. And now nobody knows what lie to commit to. Because yeah. some of it's supposed to be true. Some of it's supposed to be not. Even the stuff that's supposed to be not true, you're then given... When I say that something's supposed to be true, I should say, I'm not just talking about wrestling. WWE is a multimedia empire. I'm talking about their, like, quote-unquote documentaries and their reality shows and the tweets of their wrestlers, which are tightly controlled, you know, all of these other streams of media are just as important as the core wrestling product. Mm-hmm. Because when you watch the core wrestling product, you need to have all of that lore, all of that background to actually appreciate what you're watching. So it's not unlike comic books or Marvel movies in that way, where it really says you need to consume more media if you're going to understand any one piece of media.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, I do want to sort Probably of circle just... in and, and, and drill down on Vince, the figure. So you do yeah. uh, actually fairly comprehensive bio like biography of like a lot of his childhood and you've done mm-hmm. various interviews. And, and you know, w- when he comes through to me as almost like a uh, a modern day, just like. Lyle Landley, essentially from The Simpsons, Mm -hmm. where he just kind of like wants to sell the monorail (laughs) and like move on to the next town, or 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 P.T. Barnum, even like uh like he's actually like running the circus, and
1: yeah, I mean Barnum is a is a decent comparison, Mm -hmm. you know. He going back to Vince's earliest days in wrestling, which were in high school, if you can believe it, even though he's never talked about that publicly, um you know, I talked to people from that era and from every era onward. And the word that came up most often to describe Vince, especially among people who knew him when he was a youth was showman,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, and it wasn't just those people. You have people in, you know, legal depositions and in interviews throughout Vince's life saying he was, he is a showman. And Barnum obviously is sort of the ur showman (laughs) of American entertainment. and, Vince has drawn I don't know how much Vince even knows about PT Barnum but he's drawn from that well of you know you have the strong man you have the freak show you have all uh, you Comedy. know you have the bearded lady you mm-hmm. have whatever and that is how you actually get butts and seats is by playing to people's libidinal urges yeah. you know wrestling and pornography are always at the forefront of any technological change you know Vince was doing um over the top streaming before anybody was, he had his own streaming product in like 2014.
0: Yeah. The network. Yeah. That'd be network. Now
1: somewhat defunct or at least defunct in places where Peacock exists. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, that, and that's just one of the more recent examples. I mean, Vince was at the forefront of the cable television revolution and the pay-per-view revolution. Not always the first mover, but the one who managed to make it work for himself mm-hmm. before anybody else. And that's the thing about wrestling mm-hmm. is like similarly to pornography because it plays to the basis urges and doesn't have a whole lot of rules about propriety. Um, it can get away with trying things, Mm -hmm. you know, it can get away with saying, well, is this a new way for us to get people angry? Is this a new way for us to get people horned up? You know, (laughs) you can, if you find a new path for pressing people's brain buttons, then you take it.
0: Yeah. And, and Vince was also the guy that was able to take wrestling, at least like from a, from a yeah, it was regional... sort of a
1: consortium. It was there was there was a cartel yeah. of regional promotions. It was a very regional NWA. Uh, industry as of when Vince entered it in the nineteen seventies. Mm-hmm. And then when he took it over, he bought his father's company, which was a northeastern wrestling promotion of considerable size. Uh, he bought, finishes buying it from his dad in nineteen eighty three, and subsequently just goes on an immediate war path. And just demolishes the territories. Mm-hmm. It's really as simple as that. Like he decided he was going. I mean, there were a lot of contingencies that could have led to his defeat, but as things turned out, they all worked out in his favor. Mm-hmm. In his favor, and he ended up becoming, you know, after let's see, there were there's about ten years in by two thousand three. Mm-hmm. I bet rather by nineteen ninety three, there's only one major competitor left.
2: WTW. Ted World
1: mm-hmm. Championship Wrestling. And then within 20 years, by 2003, there's no competitors left.
2: Mm-hmm. From
1: 2001 until 2019, Vince was unopposed in the wrestling space in terms of major promotions. There he was nobody the world. that posed a significant threat in, in, well, in, in the United States In the and United Canada. States, yeah. In the United States and Canada. Elsewhere, they're their own industries. but. Sure. You know, France, uh, Mexico, Japan, these are all places that have their own industries. But like in the U.S. and Canada, which is an enormous market, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: he was the only game in town, really. I mean, there were indie promotions and smaller things, but nothing that was actually a threat. He managed to achieve the businessman's dream of essentially becoming a monopoly. Mm -hmm. It didn't last forever. He now has you know, competition in the form of AEW. Although that's, I think overblown in terms of the threat it poses Mm -hmm. um, because they're, they're just not aiming as high as Vince uh, currently is, you know? Um, And they're not like, it's
0: it's concerned with connecting with like popular culture. Like they just had this week, a match where
1: AEW is happy to create a good wrestling product, but they're not a transmedia empire, you know, which is what WWE has been for a long time. It is not just a wrestling show. It is streaming. It is content for networks. It is content for movie studios. It's a farm league for actors. They and get coverage
0: on ESPN, like the actual legitimate sports channel. I know,
1: and they're they're lobbying now to get betting. Oh yeah, for betting on rest priest unscripted wrestling matches. Like <laughs> this is this is how deeply embedded wwe is
0: i think they have that i watched i watched backlash this past weekend which was the show that like they had uh with no, Bad I watched, Bunny. I watched. and they well, had I saw like all these
1: ads but i forgive me maybe i maybe i'm not up on it currently i thought that was just them at doing an ad for DraftKings.
0: oh maybe maybe you're I right thought
1: it was deceptive i think the idea was it made you think you'd be betting i could be wrong maybe no, i should have looked be, into I, I, that you, i presumed know.
0: Your guess is as good know. as mine, but the the sort of like message that was sent was you can go on DraftKings right now. Draft the message you right we were now. trying
1: to send was, "Wouldn't it be cool to bet on this uh, wrestling?"
0: Oh, okay, I got it.
1: I I could be wrong. Uh-huh. I don't want your listeners to think I'm giving you gospel <laughs> on that because I actually don't have the inside scoop.
0: It's all okay. fine. Uh, yeah. But but, but that, that they definitely at least want that to be the case. They well, want at want but, that to be uh-huh. the case,
1: and they have lucrative partnerships mm-hmm. with uh, DraftKings. But like, it's just. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's crazy on the face of it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But and, that's
1: how and, you advance in uh, a, a business setting where shame is not something that is really operative, which mm-hmm. is what Vince does.
0: Right. Uh, let me pause real quick for Station ID. You are listening to WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3. Uh, We have Josie Reisman on the show. Uh, She is the author of Ringmaster, Vince McMahon, and the Unmaking of America. Uh, We were just talking a little bit about um, how Vince was able to sort of take wrestling from sort of a regional um, entity into more of a national and international entity to a certain extent uh, into an empire. And he did this whilst, while you mentioned being an extreme showman and also having a particularly bad record when it comes to labor relations um one of the i mean wrestlers um are currently not um even classified as employees they're classified as contractors no they've
1: never they've never been classified as employees it's always been gig work
0: yeah it's been gig gig work work and um and any attempts at organizing, there's the the great story of... Of
1: um, Jesse Ventura Jesse... trying to organize it after WrestleMania two. which mm-hmm. didn't make it into the book, I will say, because the book was so chock-full of other labor violations that, <laughs> as you'll see, when I get to that point, I tried really hard to shoehorn that in, mm-hmm. but Vince it's... had too much life to be able to get into detail on every single thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, after WrestleMania two in 1986, Jesse Ventura, or right before, rather, Jesse Ventura... Made an effort to try to um, unionize mm-hmm. the locker room, and somebody snitched him out. Now the rumor is that it was Hulk Hogan. Who knows? Um, I believe but, it. <laughs> yeah, it's all wrestling is all about belief. So if you mm-hmm. choose to believe that, go ahead. But um, uh but yeah, no, Vince does not like unions. Mm-hmm. Vince's father didn't like unions. Vince's grandfather didn't like unions. There, there are business owners. They, they are fundamentally allergic to unionization, mm-hmm. and there is basically no hope of unionization right now in wrestling. It's, it's become because it's so firmly entrenched as a non-union profession. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to reverse course on that because there's legislation in place that like just allows that. I mean, mm-hmm. because there's no, or rather there's lack of legislation in that wrestling has sort of never been meaningfully and informedly regulated mm-hmm. in this country. It just doesn't happen because nobody takes wrestling seriously as a product. So therefore, it seems like you don't have to treat it seriously as an industry that requires worker protections.
0: And, and like, indeed, indeed, like Vince actually like... So there was a tradition in wrestling of essentially like wrestling being like at least somewhat responsive to local boxing commissions or whatever, right? And that's in the 80s no longer became the case even
1: yeah there's still places where there's some regulation Mm -hmm. but yeah the point was in the 80s um vince and his wife linda went on a campaign somewhat covert but then it became outed by the new york times in 1989 to deregulate wrestling this was their entry into politics this is how they met rick santorum when he was a (laughs) junior lawyer you know, um, uh, you know that Rick Rick was a lawyer at Kirkpatrick and Lockhart, this law firm they were working with when they were trying to deregulate in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and Santorum of all people was assigned to their account. So <laughs> that was the not just because of Santorum, but that kind of politicking
2: mm-hmm. was
1: the beginning of them being in conservative politics. Mm-hmm. Now, for a while, they donated to both Democrats and Republicans as long as they were you know pro business, quote unquote, right. but. Um, eventually that hardened as is true for many donors into just donating to the Republican party, you know, to Republicans. Mm -hmm. And then Linda became a major operative, but all of that starts with that deregulation effort. Mm -hmm. You know, that all starts with how do we pay fewer taxes and not have to deal with health regulations for our wrestlers. Mm -hmm. And the way they dealt with it was fascinating. They told legislators openly in, in Session, wrestling is fake. The way they would frame it was it's an exhibition. It's like Harlem Globetrotter. The Harlem Globetrotters are the circus. Mm-hmm. It's something where it's not really a competition. So that was unprecedented to just admit that in a legal setting like legislation uh, sessions or in lawsuits as they were also doing because they had to get out of some, some lawsuits they were in. Mm-hmm. So that effort ends up leading to just a further entrenchment of this abuse of the wrestlers. I mean today, today you are not an employee of WWE if you're a wrestler, you could be the biggest wrestler in the whole company and you don't get health insurance from that company. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. You're going to have to go on a state exchange or something. There's just it's ludicrous, but it's true. The median the median salary for a working full-time wrestler is like 50 grand and
0: <laughs> which is nothing and that it's doesn't include with
1: no health insurance. And then you're paying taxes on top of that. Plus you're you paying for pay travel. For of...
0: Say again, you're paying for travel as well.
1: Yeah. And you're paying for travel until you get to a high enough level that you get the perks, mm-hmm. you know, and you get paid basically whatever Vince wants you to get paid. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's no real, there's no union no contract <laughs> that guarantees anything. You just get paid, whatever, especially back in the day, it really was just whatever Vince felt like paying you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I mean, if I I remember there was a really dark time in like the, around 2002 through 2005, where it felt like almost every week, you see this wrestler died at 40 something years old. I remember 2000, it was 2005 or 2006. I remember when Eddie Guerrero just like. Died four, I at that
1: 04 or five? all of a sudden, I'm drawing a blank, but yes, I think yeah, it was, was o- right. f- It was
0: after Hurricane Katrina because we had evacuated and we were That's in Florida. When I got the message, angry. um, but um, I like, like and he was what for like 43 or something like that. He was like in, in an extremely good shape, um, and and you know, you just see like one after another for a very, very long period of time because these people, you know, they it's so insane that they would work this like extremely like car crash, like job every night yep. and they don't have health insurance. That's, they,
1: that's the thing is like you self-select. This is what wrestling figured out before a lot of other industries, but now every industry tries to do this. They say, you got to do this for the love of it.
2: Mm-hmm. You yeah.
1: know, they make your, they, fi- they self-select for people who are kind of addicted to wrestling.
0: Yeah. Which is an extremely yeah. addicting thing.
1: It's just, well, for certain people, and mm-hmm. those are the people who get ahead. Mm-hmm. You don't hear the stories of the great wrestlers who didn't get addicted to wrestling because you kind of have to get the bug in order to continue to put up with all the garbage.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, that is, that's the filter. And so you end up with these wrestlers who are very successful but see themselves as the products of a system that they have to reinforce. And that mm-hmm. system keeps most people out and keeps the people who are in it Loyal. Under the heel mm-hmm. of
0: the promoter, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. And and yeah, and and I mean, that almost like, I hate to say like, the word culminated feels like it's wrong, but like it really kind of felt like it had hit its high mark when uh Chris Benoit, um, no, no, shortly after yeah. the death of Eddie Guerrero, who they were very yeah. close he murdered his entire family and then then his wife
1: and son and then killed himself. And yeah, the, the Benoit murder suicide was a real turning point. Mm -hmm. You know, my book, I will fully confess because I had a strict word count. Mm -hmm. i I end the book, the core narrative in 1999. Mm -hmm. Um, I did a lot of research about everything that happened after that, but, (laughs) I just couldn't fit all of his life into the word count I had. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping to do a sequel at some point, which I will get into more detail about the Benoit murder-suicide, because that really was this major turning point where WWE really toned down a lot of the extreme stuff they were doing. And that transition needs to be reckoned with, because although they toned it down, they still warp reality in this very... um, uh, efficient and dangerous way mm-hmm. you know like even though they're not giving you the shock value stuff I would contend that their manipulation of reality is, is just as dangerous mm-hmm. and their breeding of cynicism among people who watch it's 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 really interesting as a social phenomenon. I love wrestling. Oh, yeah. But I really fear what wrestling has become in a lot of ways.
0: And and, and again, you know, one of those sort of descriptions or, or ways that they do sort of manipulate history is they sort of they, they rewrite the history of their own their own. Um, like of the industry, the wrestling industry itself, because when course, they, they own everything, they yeah, own the table when, libraries. They, they, and so, like when WCW went under, essentially, you know, Ted Turner sells off all of, or who it was AOL Time Warner at the time sells yeah. off all of the all of all, basically everything, the entire canon. <laughs>
1: Not, the, but but Vince didn't buy the contracts of the top talent. No, 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 no.
0: That's 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 much more of a liability. But 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 they're able to essentially have these libraries where they make now on like Sunday nights on AE, yeah. uh they have these you know documentary these nights biography
1: things that are just these fake documentaries that you know p- position themselves as real but are unbelievably manipulated narratives
2: mm-hmm.
1: but the reason they get to get made is because nobody else has access to the archival footage mm-hmm. you can't run it so if you want to tell wrestling history you have to go through WWE most of the time
2: mm-hmm. you
0: know Or you just don't have tapes. You just have somebody doing interviews. Or
1: or whatever. It's really hard to tell wrestling here's the thing. There are people who tell wrestling's history outside of WWE. But they tend to be in either like small press books that people don't read Mm -hmm. or the stories are I would contend that a lot of the stuff you hear in some of the sort of exposes that make it to the mainstream is stuff that WWE is not necessarily. Planting—I don't think it's them planting, but mm-hmm. I think if they wanted to stop certain people from telling certain stories, they could pretty easily. Yeah, they know it's to their advantage that Vince has a reputation as a shady badass. Mm-hmm. You know, that's actually something that's very good for WWE. Mm-hmm. So when you tell this was this is kind of the double-edged sword of my book was like, on, on one hand, I'm trying to talk about and expose lots of abuse and alleged crimes and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, the book perhaps on some level is, is just, you know, might bolster the legend. Mm -hmm. If you, if you read it wrong, this was really dangerous while I was writing. I was like, I have to write this very carefully so that I'm not just so that I, so that I'm not alienating people. I need people to be drawn into this. And I don't know, it's, 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 it's a real, it's, it's a very upsetting story uh-huh. and I tried to approach it with, uh, with dignity, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: I think, I think you accomplished that. Um, but um, at least in what I've gotten through so far, um, but I do think that like uh, to, to that point, like this is a story, like these are stories that do need to be like broadly told just so that there is more of an understanding of what goes on in this world because there was i mean again um just much similar to the well actually it was it was even more bizarre i said perhaps than the owen hart um raw is yeah. war the one after uh yeah. the benoit murder suicide where they were well, that was, one, was one of the most horrifying the things of all time because the the news had not even been released that it was a murder suicide oh, yeah, it was not. just that they were but dead
1: tribute to benoit where vince mcmahon came back because he had been he, he story was, was
0: storyline dead <laughs> yeah he was storyline dead he was, he,
1: was story line, he was dead and he comes back to say there's a tribute to benoit and then comes back the next week to say we will never speak of Chris Benoit again. Right. And to this day, if you go on WWE Network, which you can't get in the U.S. anymore, but around the world, if you go on their streaming platform, Benoit's name does not appear once.
2: Mm-hmm. You will
1: there will be clips of his matches, and they will be listed with like you know most matches are listed as like you know such and such versus such and such, but th- those matches are just listed as like the opponent in a singles match or yeah. like the opponent in a yeah. championship match it never mentions that ben is in it he's been and that's the point it's like they get to whitewash that history they get because who's going to stop them they own all the libraries
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah um and but that's
1: i mean that's how that's how power works
2: yes right it's like, a perfect example
1: it's one of the simplest equations. Orwell identified it in 1984, mm-hmm. which you know is he who controls the past controls the future, and who who controls the present controls the past. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. And Vince, even if he hasn't read Orwell, has certainly lived up to that dream when it comes to wrestling.
0: And he definitely understands power.
1: <laughs> he definitely understands power. That's mm-hmm. one thing that Vince has a deep and intimate understanding of.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, from you uh, wrote in the story about um, like as as Vince is going national with the WWE, he's also like covering up for the murder of um, uh, what was it? J- Superfly Jimmy Snuka. Uh, yeah,
1: well, allegedly Vince covered helped cover up the murder of Nancy Argentino, mm-hmm. who was the girlfriend of Jimmy Superfly Snuka. Mm-hmm. A top star in the WWF as of 1983, 82, 83. Yeah. And um, yeah, while Vince was in the process of making these balloon payments to his father so he could buy the company, he was allegedly, you know, I shouldn't even say allegedly. There's parts of it. I, I don't know, you know, legally it's a murky situation, but there are parts of that story that are very transparently Vince not wanting Jimmy Snuka to have to face any consequences. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just how the story worked. And I don't I doubt Vince would even really deny that. Right. He he wanted to make sure that his prized chicken was still available to go to market, you know, and that. Yeah, that's you know, that's just one story at the beginning of his time in charge.
0: Uh, and then there was also the steroid scandal of the of the mid 90s. Yeah, he, he
1: went to trial with the federal government over steroid distribution. Yeah, there was a pedophilia ring at WWF oh, that's right. that allegedly covered up. Um, there was endless sexual
0: you know, assaults over the years.
1: Sexual assault accusations—you could just keep going and going.
0: Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that's—it's—it it's, really is—it really is wild. Just sort of like how much there is just you don't even have to dig very deep just how much there is when it comes to like just the i don't know the, the the stuff that the stuff that was just on the road and the you know wwf truck drives through it you know what i mean
1: i know that's the thing i didn't have to a lot of it's low-hanging fruit. Yeah. And then I, I continued to pick after that, though, and found... Sure. I mean, for me, the most shocking thing was not any of the shocking crime allegations. It was quite the inverse, learning that he was actually kind of a nice kid when he was growing up. Okay. Because that, of course, piqued my interest. as to like, so how did he end up being the person accused of all of these things? And, you know, you can't come up with a perfect answer to a question like that, but I think a huge factor was his father. You know, he, he, once he met his father got into wrestling, he was not into wrestling prior to that. Mm -hmm. And his father was this Northeastern wrestling promoter. He's growing up poor in North Carolina because his father abandoned him when he was 12, uh, before he was born. And Mm -hmm. then he didn't meet him until he was 12, you know? Yeah. And that left a huge impression. He was raised in this abusive household and then meets his father and decides that wrestling is going to be his destiny. And his father really was very resistant to Vince. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something that I also uncovered. No one really knew anything about Vince Sr. and his relationship with Vince or his other family that had never really been reported on. You know, he adopted this other family, basically, after he'd abandoned his biological family, you know. And there had been some reporting here and there, but it hadn't really been synthesized about... um, Vince McMahon's business practices. You know, I have a... a Vin, I'm sorry, Vince McMahon Sr. Vince... Yeah. His dad. Vincent James McMahon. His his business practices were pretty ruthless, you know? I mean, there's there's a, an FBI memo to J. Edgar Hoover about him <laughs> tampering with a witness during a federal investigation in the 50s. He told this wrestler, Dr. Jerry Graham, who happened to be Vince's favorite wrestler, by coincidence, um, you know... If 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 you you know where your bread is buttered, if you do this, referring to testifying in a certain way in this investigation, you're hanging yourself. Self preservation. F it. Now I can't say the actual word yeah. on on radio, but it's really amazing. Jay Hoover, of course, being the competent civil servant that he was, never followed up on that memo. Apparently, <laughs> um, nothing actually happened with it, but. Uh, The point is we have that document and it it all adds up to a picture of a guy who there's a lot of other stories, too, but it adds up to a picture of a father who was really presenting this very iron fisted personal and business model to his son.
0: Yeah,
1: the son ate it all up. Vince, Vince Jr. really, really learned those lessons. Yeah,
0: and perfected it in a lot of ways, honestly. Um... Yeah, I mean,
1: I I say that Mr. McMahon, his character is less Vince McMahon than it is Vince McMahon Sr. (laughs) I think it's it's more Vincent James McMahon than it is Vincent Kennedy McMahon, at least in Vince's own, in the way it formed in Vince's head. Because Vince, Vince will always say in the rivalry between Mr. McMahon and Stone Cold Steve Austin, he was Steve Austin. He will always say when we were conceiving that story, I was Steve Austin. That was who the character was based on. And Mr. McMahon was based on every rich person I knew growing up growing up who lorded it over people that they had money. Now, Vince didn't know that many people with money growing up. Mm-hmm. You know? At boarding school probably he met some folks. But I'm the main person in his life over and over who had a real influence and left a real impact, who was rich and lorded it over people, was his father. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the guy. There are plenty of stories of him being rich and letting everyone know that he's not one to be messed with. And I think Mr. McMahon, it's no coincidence that the name is just a male honorific of power and then the last name of this man who abandoned Vince when he was a child. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: On the um the uncovering some of this sort of unknown history, that's actually very very interesting because it's something that wasn't really like no like like you mentioned that you did some interviews with um like family members. How how did that? First off, I I really got to ask like the process of tracking them down, and also were people excited to talk to you about this stuff? Because um, I imagine it's people probably people who knew people who knew Vince as a youth were generally willing to
1: talk to me. Uh-huh ones that I was able to get in touch with because Vince didn't make a huge impression on a lot of people. That was the amazing thing. Not until he got to high school and started doing pro wrestling and pro wrestling shows at his boarding school, military school. Did he start to really develop a reputation as like a fun guy? Mm -hmm. He was sort of known as this like generally nice kid who people didn't really have much of a thought about. Um, And then he really finds himself and it all changes you know
2: mm-hmm.
0: that's it inter- i mean yeah that is sort of like what clicked there it's the and and, and it might right. just be yeah, the meeting the there, father when at 13, think, 12 years old or whatever he said
1: right when he was 12 he starts watching wrestling uh through his father mm-hmm. and at some point he just decided he was going to be this like i said showman mm-hmm. and you know, that his 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 product was going to be entertainment and he really threw himself into it. I mean, I I really was astounded to learn about these pro wrestling shows he would do at his gym in high school, you know, when he was ape man, McMahon, ape. you know, he's, <laughs> but the point is he never talks about this. He never talks about this. And I'll tell you why, because the, the self mythologizing mm-hmm. about Vince McMahon is that he was a juvenile delinquent. Mm hmm. He was not the kind of kid who would get permission from the administration to do a fake wrestling show. The The image that he projects about his youth is, I was a rough and tumble kid who was constantly getting into fights and causing trouble. And he tells stories about that when it has to do with military school. But from everything I could find at military school, all he was doing was mostly going to class and then doing these pro wrestling shows and doing mm-hmm. sports, which he wasn't very good at.
0: So he he basically did some of the same rewriting of history on himself, essentially.
1: Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's essential for anybody who's trying to create a, a business, yeah. business. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, as we sort of start to wind down, um, I did want to ask... Uh, one more thing just sort of like in the sort of like yeah. later trajectory that was sort of interesting we have about 10 minutes left um sure. just sort of like w- how he presented himself on television for like many years as a commentator and then also all of a sudden in what it was like 1996 he's all of a yeah,
1: sudden an on stream little bl- blurred outs mm-hmm. I mean that was actually very interesting people had forgotten in the popular mythology that Vince was outed as the owner in 1996. Yeah. Everyone thinks it happened with the Montreal screw job more than a year later, but yeah. it had started in prior to that. It would just happen in these weird dribs and drabs where you as the audience had no idea what was going on really. Mm-hmm. Cause yeah, he had presented himself this as an announcer, announcer guy. <laughs> just the, the announcer, no matter how absurd that was
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the context of the WWF, he was just an announcer. And then it seemed advantageous to try and mess with the fourth wall and admit that Vince was what he was. And so Mm -hmm. they did. Mm -hmm. And if that's something that can goose people, they'll do it. So that was, they broke the seal in 96, but it doesn't really kick into high gear until the so-called Montreal screw job. If you'll forgive the the, the term art in 1987, when famous wrestler Bret Hart had the script flipped on him by Vince um, in a deeply humiliating moment. Yeah. Um, after that, then they really doubled down on Vince being a character. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting was prior to that, they'd been experimenting with Vince being a good guy. And then they really commit to him being what the public perceives as a big parody of himself, but which, like I said, I would contend is in many ways a parody of his father.
0: hmm. Yeah, and then you also kind of get the, um, the sort of like fantasy, I guess you could say, of like the Stone Cold Steve Austin, and then like everybody else later down the line of being like, I'm the top good guy, and I'm gonna beat up my boss. <laughs> you know, what I mean? like right, who doesn't want right. to do that?
1: And the thing is, the audience ate it up because it was like, well, he really is beating up his boss, <laughs> like. Because th- on some level, sure, you know, it's fake, but also this boss is really putting his life on the line. I mean, mm-hmm. there were some really dangerous matches oh, that yeah. Vince McMahon has had
0: where he really was risking life and limb. And he was in like a, he was like a bodybuilding freak. And like he was he was also implicated that in
1: the years. He was a bodybuilding freak who didn't actually show off his muscles on yeah. television.
0: But then all of a sudden when he shows up for a wrestling match, he's like just this jacked monster. <laughs>
1: fascinating <laughs> you watch that episode when he first takes off his top and you can see how jacked he is yeah jerry and the king waller all... like
0: like squealing jerry the king <laughs> waller
1: just like, sounding almost homoerotic about him he's like he's jacked look at him he's amazing
0: <laughs> unforgettable it's truly unforgettable another yes. another i wish
1: i'd been watching wrestling when i when that first happened mm-hmm. i was not yet a watcher but re-watching it watching old vhs rips of the live broadcasts you get a sense of how momentous and strange it was.
0: Yeah. So, um, and I guess as we as we wind down, um, you know, the, there was the recent sort of like deposing of Vince McMahon, and, and then of course he came back into the into the, yeah. the structure through this like wild deal that took place, and and yeah. all these other things. I, you really kind of get the sense that he's the kind of guy that will just be in power until he dies he cannot be away from it i can't
1: it. imagine him letting go of power at yeah. any point if he hasn't by now he's not going to willingly
0: yeah much like I diane feinstein he will just ride it until the end <laughs> we
1: well, ride right till the end and ari Emanuel has a hell of a time ahead of him trying to be vince mcmahon's boss
2: yeah that's vince true. mcmahon
1: does not historically have bosses his dad was his boss and that was about as much as it gets yeah you know as far as it went
2: yeah
0: all right. Well, um, where can we find more information about your book? Is there anything else you wanted to say? Yeah,
1: please. If you want to find out more about the book and the zine that spun out of it, you can go to ringmasterthebook.com or you can go to oh, or R-I-E-S-M-A-N.
0: There's, there's a zine?
1: Yeah, there's a zine. We got a zine. It's called Greater Power, a Vince McMahon zine. You can order it. If you go to ringmasterthebook.com, you can find a link to Secret Headquarters, the comic book shop that's selling it online.
0: Oh, no way. That's pretty cool. I am gonna have to look into that. It's got great
1: stuff. Box Brown, the comics artist, illustrated a section of my book. Uh, Nate Powell, Leela Corman, a lot of really great artists and writers contributed stuff to it. So, yeah, check it out.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, everybody should go check that out. Well, um, thank you so much, Josie. I appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, really nice talking with you. I'm, you know, proud owner of a uh, signed copy by you, <laughs> which was really nice that. of you. <laughs> great. But uh, thanks so much for um, for listening, everybody. Thanks for joining me, Josie, and uh, everybody. Have a wonderful night. We love you. Bye bye.